and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Welcome to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. I'm Heather Sarantis, Environmental Health Consultant with Breast Cancer Action, and I'll be your guest podcast host today. Breast cancer takes the lives of approximately 40,000 women every year, though a significant portion of these women have no family history of the disease. For years, Breast Cancer Action has been raising the question of why? Is there something in our environment that causes this disease, and what can we do to stop it? Increasingly, researchers are finding environmental links to the disease, including exposures to fossil fuel-based chemicals. Here at Breast Cancer Action, we've been exploring what living in an industrialized society driven by fossil fuels means for breast cancer risk. What are we exposed to when fossil fuels are extracted, processed, manufactured, burned, and disposed of? What does this do to our health and who is most affected? For several years, Breast Cancer Action has worked in hydraulic fracturing, also known as fracking, a method of extracting hard-to-reach oil and natural gas by injecting large quantities of water mixed with chemicals into the ground. Right now, the fracking industry is booming, making fossil fuels readily available for a wide range of industrial uses. One industry that is growing significantly as a result of this boom is plastics. With me today is Dr. Carol Kwiatkowski to talk about this fossil fuels to plastic pipeline and what it means for our health. Until last year, Carol served as the executive director of the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, or TEDx, for 11 years until the organization closed. There, she played an instrumental role in exposing the links between fracking and endocrine disrupting chemicals. In fact, TEDx was really the leader in making the connection between fracking and endocrine disruptors, and their work has served people across the country and even the world in understanding the magnitude of the problem. She recently joined the Green Science Policy Institute as a science and policy research associate and is also an adjunct assistant professor at North Carolina State University. Carol, thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So for starters, let's set the stage for what we are talking about. The Center for International Law reports that 99% of plastics are produced from chemicals sourced from fossil fuels. And the fossil fuels used to make plastics are largely sourced from fracking. Can you explain what fracking is, some of the problems associated with fracking, and the scale of fracking in the United States? I certainly can. The process of hydraulic fracturing is a method by which you drill down into the ground vertically thousands of feet and then you can also now, as part of this new technology that's come around just in this century, you can drill out horizontally as well, thousands of feet. And then you use a mixture of water and chemicals and sand or other things that serve as propents. And you, under extremely high pressure, you force that into the well bore and out into the uh, underlying formation to fracture it. So it's the high pressure that fractures the underground formation. 
And uh, from that, then the target chemicals, which is typically natural gas, methane and oil, um, as well as a lot of other chemicals come up to the surface and can be captured and used. And uh, this process of fracturing um, uses hundreds of different chemicals that serve a variety of functions. They can be biocides, solvents, lubricants, they're mixed with millions of gallons of water for each fracturing operation that happens. After the fracturing um, and the fluids start to flow back up, you have an initial period of what's called flowback, where you're really recapturing most of what you put in underground. And that's typically followed by a lot of water, what's called produced water coming up from underground, which still has some of the fracking fluids in it. It's also filled with native chemicals from underground. And all of this water, again, the millions of gallons of, and the initial water and millions of gallons of produced water has to then be moved off the pad. The flowback is often reused, recycled, reused, but anything else has to be disposed of. And so there's a huge disposal issue for toxic wastewater from fracking where they are now um, injecting it into these deep injection pits underground to just to store it. So that's generally the process of getting down into the ground and getting the chemicals you want out of the ground. Um, the widespread use of fracking is relatively new, as I mentioned, it's really just since the early 2000s. There are uh, several large shale plays in the US. Colorado was one of the first um, to, to really be a concentrated area of hydraulic fracturing. The Marcellus Shale in the Northeast that spans New York, Pennsylvania, and a couple of other states is another big one. And then there are some in Texas as well. California is um, experiencing fracking um, in a variety of areas and, and even different methods. So it's it really is across the country. And one thing that's really different about fracking versus the traditional drilling for oil is that it's happening in people's backyards, literally. I just was providing testimony for the state of Colorado on trying to extend the distance that, that they're, they're granting, um, how far you can be away from someone's house and drill a well, which is currently 500 feet, and we're pushing for at least 2,000, 2,500 feet to try to get some distance between this industrial process and people's homes. So the other uh, point to your question, I think, is that... Um, Fossil fuels used to be the primary target. We were going down to get methane and, and oil mostly. But now there's a glut because the US has been so successful with hydraulic fracturing. Gas prices are extremely low. So the emphasis has switched to the other petrochemicals that come up with the fuels, which are now more valuable and have a wide variety of uses. And one of the biggest is plastics, which we'll be talking about. Thank you for that, for that context. So one of the concerns about fracking uh, that you mentioned is that it can expose people, more than people, but people to hundreds of endocrine or hormone disrupting chemicals. So we'll get to the specific link to breast cancer a little later, but to lay the foundation, can you describe what endocrine disruptors are and the pioneering work your former organization, the Endocrine Disruption Exchange did in connecting fracking to these chemicals? Sure. Endocrine disrupting chemicals, also known as hormone disruptors, 
are very simply chemicals that affect our hormone signaling system. So our body kind of runs in, in one sense on hormones, a lot of different hormones in the body. And endocrine disruptors can either mimic those hormones, they can block the receptors that, that function via those hormones, they can affect the production or metabolism of hormones in the body. And all of this can lead to a variety of other uh, health outcomes, including cancer, breast cancer, um, things like infertility and other reproductive problems, obesity, diabetes, thyroid problems, asthma, whole myriad of health problems can arise from endocrine disruption. Um, one of the biggest concerns is that when exposure occurs during prenatal development, when you're, you know, you start out as just a couple of cells and those cells then begin forming into different tissues in the body that become organs and then the whole systems that develop, the immune system, the metabolic system, the nervous system. And hormones are incredibly important in those early days when those other systems don't really exist. When your body is exposed to these chemicals, development can go awry and that can lead to permanent damage because it's not just an impact that then can be resolved later, it's something that actually affects how the body develops in the womb. So this was the focus of what the Endocrine Disruption Exchange, TEDx, worked on for many, many years. And to tie this to how we got involved in hydraulic fracturing, we operated out of Colorado, and our founder, one of the founders of the field of endocrine disruption, also became a leading figure in this, this connection between hydraulic fracturing and health. And it all started with this woman in Colorado who contacted her and said, they just have been fracturing a well a thousand feet from my house in my backyard. There was a blowout, my well expo exploded, her water well. Um, and I have contracted this rare adrenal tumor and I'm pregnant or I was pregnant at the time and I'm concerned about what this could mean for me. And so that is really the spark that led Dr. Colborn down the path of trying to figure out what's going on with this process of hydraulic fracturing. This was in 2003, I think. Um, nobody was talking about fracking. Nobody really knew much about it outside of the industry. So we began gathering information on what chemicals were being used. And then we started researching the health effects that could follow from those chemicals. And uh, we built them into big Excel spreadsheets and put them on our website. That was kind of the, the function of TEDx was to gather scientific information and help translate it and share it with the public. So we were building these databases and talking to people about what was going on. And from there, um, it was around about that time that um, the Marcellus Shale on the East Coast uh, became the big uh, center for hydraulic fracturing then, and or that was the next target. And New York City was very concerned about their watershed in the Delaware River, River Valley. So they subcontracted with TEDx to do some research around it and to inform them and educate them. And from that, they imposed a moratorium on hydraulic fracturing in the city's watershed. Well, then New York State got concerned and New York State ended up with a moratorium as well, which is in stark contrast to the neighboring state of Pennsylvania, where they pretty much opened their arms to the industry and hydraulic fracturing has run rampant across that state. So states are responding very differently to this, uh, the impact of fracking. 
Meanwhile, TEDx was moving on to concerns over air pollution because people were concerned about water and exposure to drinking water. But all of these chemicals, a, a, a large number of them are volatile and can you know, create air pollution from that, which really exposes everyone, not just the people that are living near the fracking sites. Um, the other thing that we were concerned over is that we had identified that approximately a third of the chemicals were endocrine disruptors. And uh, this is a big concern, not only because of what I've talked about, about what endocrine disruptors can do, but also because hormones in your body function at very tiny doses, very tiny concentrations of hormones make a big difference in how you function. And so endocrine disruptors by analogy, also can cause big problems from very small amounts. And so we were concerned that these chemicals are in the air, they could be getting into people's water, and in very small amounts could lead to endocrine-related disorders. So that is what kicked off TEDx's involvement in these dual processes of endocrine disruption and hydraulic fracturing. And we had a strong network of scientists who've been following our work and collaborating with us on different things. And so I think a lot of the research that has come out of the field of um, sort of the public health research and the toxicology research that's looking at the impact of fracking directly on people's health is focusing on um, prenatal exposure, birth outcomes, hormone disruption from all of that. And I think that that is largely a, a product of our early involvement in this the intersection of these two fields. I want to take us back to the the big picture again. Um, you've done a, a really great job of laying the foundation around fracking, and um, you started to talk about the plastic connection. Can you say more about how the fracking industry is fueling this explosion in plastic production? Absolutely. Approximately somewhere between 4 and 8% of oil globally is used for plastic. But 50% of the growth between now and 2050 is expected to be used for plastic. So this is still, on the, we're on the forefront of a huge boom in plastics. And that is driven in part by this availability of the feedstock chemicals. And there's a massive wave of investment occurring in the U.S. to increase the capacity to make more plastic chemicals and products. On the scale of $200 billion in capital investment into over 300 facilities, both new facilities and old facilities. And what they do in, in terms of what this investment drives is because it's, it's hard to transport these large quantities of the feedstock chemicals. So they try to gather together in one region the different facilities that are needed to transition from the chemicals, the petrochemicals that come up from underground into the an, an end product that they can sell. And so these large areas are developing that contain everything from the chemical separators to these huge ethane crackers that make ethylene, which is a major component in most plastics, to polymerization plants that create the polymers, um, and then facilities for chemical additives, which additives into plastics can be up to 80% by weight of the plastic. They make plastic more transparent or colorful, more flexible or more rigid. They add flame retardants. All sorts of things are added to the basic plastic monomers to create the end products. What often is the product is these little beads called nurdles, which are kind of the, the basis for creating 
other, you know, more specific plastic products that end up in your home. There are resins and films and a whole variety of other chemicals that come out of these huge conglomerations of different industries all in one place. They all are based on these toxic chemicals and processes. So one thing this, that this means is that more areas like the famous Cancer Alley that's on the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana are now going to be cropping up in the U.S. One new major hotspot is the Ohio River Valley, which spans this intersection of three states. It's like northwestern Pennsylvania, this northern sliver of West Virginia, and eastern Ohio. And that is the one of the big threats to that area is that all of this investment is coming in there and they're building that out and creating another hotspot for toxic pollution for the people that live in that area. It also means that we're going to see more and more things made out of plastic. It's not really being driven by demand. It's being driven by supply. And already our world is so full of plastics. We have plastic bags, water bottles, toys, food packaging. Think about all the cars are largely made of plastics, airplanes, carpet fibers, clothing. These plastic type of chemicals are also put in personal care products, fragrances, and cleaning supplies. So they, they're very pervasive. Um, everything you touch during your day is often plastic, desks, keyboards, your steering wheel. These products also off-gas chemicals that are not good for your health. Indoor air pollution can be four times greater than outdoors due to all the petrochemical-based products that we have in our homes. And they're also obviously out in our environment. They're in drinking water, in the air, in soil, and house dust is highly contaminated with these chemicals. So this is the, the really the scope of the problem that we're facing. It's, it's almost beyond comprehension, actually, when you think of it. And, you know, after all the use of this, we know that there's a massive uh, disposal issue that goes along with all this production as well. So that's, that's a topic for another podcast, but the, the line doesn't end at just buying the plastic products and using them. There's much more to it as well. Um, so now that we have a sense of just the magnitude of the problem, um, I'd really love to connect this to breast cancer risk. Um, I know that you have looked at hormone disruption through the lens of a number of different health issues. Um, breast cancer is just one of many of those health issues. Can you ground us a little bit in the specifics of what we've been talking about and how it might be related to increased risk for breast cancer? There are three vulnerable stages of breast development. There's gestation, you know, in the womb, puberty, and during pregnancy. Most of the research that I'm familiar with has been done on breast development following gestational exposure to endocrine disruptors. It's a lot easier to study that than breast, actual breast cancer, which requires a long time to get to that stage where you can actually measure breast cancer. We know that the breast is one of the most sensitive endpoints with respect to endocrine disruption, which means that, as I said before, tiny amounts can alter the course of breast development, amounts that you wouldn't notice causing problems in other organs. So it's a good sentinel organ in that, in that sense. And with regards to the connection between plastics and breast cancer, I'm going to focus mostly on the two most well-studied endocrine disruptors which are um, really their, their classes of endocrine disruptors, so the bisphenols and the phthalates. 
Among the bisphenols, the most well-known is bisphenol A or BPA, which people may be familiar with because water bottles, it's been taken out of water bottles, although it's been replaced with other bisphenols. But you find that in things like water bottles, it's also in the linings of metal cans. Um, it's in receipt paper, surprisingly, when you get a cash register receipt and it's the kind that you can scratch with your fingernail and leave a mark. Those are typically coated with a bisphenol. So we end up touching those all the time. And lots and lots of different plastics are based on uh, BPA or other bisphenols. What we know from animal research is that BPA, there's clear evidence for tumor formation at very low doses in, in the breast. And it's, um, the doses are similar to what humans would experience from bisphenol A exposure. It has also led to altered growth and development of the breast. For example, increased breast density, which is sort of a biomarker for later cancer risk. The evidence in humans is not quite as strong as it is in animals. It's a lot harder to study it in humans because you know there's so many other intervening factors, but it has definitely been tied to breast cancer. We also study these in uh, cells and in vitro uh, experiments. And you see things like cell proliferation, you know, growth of cells, um, reduced apoptosis, which is the, the death, the natural death of cells in the body gets slowed down. So you end up from both of those things with more breast cells, more breast cancer cells. And it also changes the expression of breast cancer related genes. So all of these lines of evidence add up to a very serious threat uh, from bisphenols, which are estrogens. Um, primarily, they actually have uh, several different hormone functions, but they're primarily estrogens. Uh, and there's another uh, point to make is that they uh, recently came out with a, a list of 10 key characteristics of human carcinogens. And when you look at bisphenol A, it satisfies seven out of those 10 key characteristics. So again, all of this evidence kind of adds up to BPA not being a safe chemical with regards to breast cancer. The other class of chemicals are phthalates, um, which again includes a variety of different chemicals in that class. They are more like plasticizers. So they affect the quality of the plastic. They make things softer, more flexible. They're in food packaging. They also happen to be used in fragrances a lot because they function as a carrier of the fragrance into the body, so they help make it last longer. Some evidence um, has been found in humans and in animals for increased breast cancer risk for phthalates. It's not as large a body of evidence or as strong as for bisphenols, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on and to be concerned about. Another important point is that most of the studies that have been done have been done on individual chemicals when in reality, we're all exposed to a mixture of different bisphenols, phthalates, other hormone disruptors, and other chemicals that can additively pose risks for breast cancer. So that's a concern that there hasn't really been enough research on mixtures that people are commonly exposed to. And as uh, I mentioned earlier, chemicals cross the placenta. So exposure to hundreds of chemicals occurs during development. They've measured this in cord blood and babies are born, as they say, pre-polluted with a lot of these chemicals in their bodies. Which is horrifying. Mm -hmm. And as, as you describe, it's hard to escape exposure, even if you 
take all sorts of personal protective measures. This stuff is just everywhere. Absolutely. So I'm going to pivot a little bit and um, and go even bigger picture here. So um, when people hear about fossil fuels, often if they're concerned, they think about climate change. So Theo Colburn, the late founder of TEDx, once said that endocrine disruption is a fossil fuel derived problem and is far more of a concern than climate change. Let's take a listen to the video of her talking about this. Well, quite frankly, uh... I feel that uh, endocrine disruption, the fossil fuel-derived problem, is far more imminent than climate change because we are not going to have enough people who are healthy enough and intelligent enough to bail us out of this dilemma we have got ourselves in. So based on your your listening to uh, her words there, um, you know, we know that both climate change and hormone disruption are crises that deserve our full attention, but climate change gets a lot more attention. You have been really deep in the topic of hormone disruption, endocrine disruption for a number of years. And I wonder if you can just share your thoughts on just how big the problem of hormone disruption is to breast cancer risk and human health in general. I think one of the most concerning aspects of it for me as a mother is that endocrine disruption can carry forward from one generation to the next. So you were exposed in the womb, I was exposed in the womb. These things, you know, may have changed how we developed. And our children and grandchildren can inherit the different manifestations of the effects we experienced, as well as being exposed themselves. So these things can compound, and we're setting up future generations for even more chronic health conditions than we're dealing with. You know, Another thing Theo used to say is that we've become a caretaker society. You know, think about how much we hear about healthcare and, and the, the problems with it. It's not just that the country can't figure out how to deal with healthcare. It's that these problems are growing exponentially. There's not only cancer and breast cancer, which is, of course, a huge one, but other reproductive problems like infertility. There's neurodevelopmental problems like ADHD and autism diabetes, immune disorders, these are all hormone related and they're skyrocketing hand in hand with this increased chemical exposure. And that is one of the biggest concerns for me. And as, as Theo liked to say, she's worried about impacts on the brain because we're not going to be able to think our way out of this problem. That's a terrifying thought. It is. It is. So with many of those challenges that you were talking about, health problems related to um, fossil fuel extraction and hormone disruption in particular, um, we know that not all people are impacted by fossil fuel-related pollution at the same level. In your work on fracking, what have you witnessed about who is most impacted and how they are impacted from these industries? What I have witnessed personally in terms of vulnerable populations is actually rural communities. People that 
live in sparsely populated areas where fracking came in first. I mean, they got, they're getting closer and closer to urban areas, but they've traditionally been a little bit outside of those communities. And these are people like other disadvantaged groups that don't really have a voice. And they, I watched firsthand as they devoted their lives to fighting this. They were doing everything they can to, you know, as a David and Goliath situation, they're fighting the fossil fuel energy sector. <laughs> it doesn't get much bigger than that. And they're saying, you know, my water is tainted. My kids are having nosebleeds every night and, and real health impacts to their families and their values of their homes and their dreams, their homesteads that they had built were all going down the drain and their communities were completely disrupted because when the industry comes in, they bring jobs with them. And so there were people that welcomed the industry. They wanted the jobs and the income. And then there were people that were feeling like they were harming their health. And so that breaks up the community and it's just done so much damage. And we would try to talk to people as much as we can out in the field. And eventually the stress of all that and the health impacts would wear them down to the point where they you know, they really just lost everything. It was incredibly sad. And um, some of them settled with the industry, but then there were gag orders, so they could no longer talk about what happened to them. So um, this is the kind of the disadvantage that I've experienced firsthand in working in this field. One last question here. And it seemed to me like in the past few years, the world was finally starting to catch on to just how big of a problem plastic is. There are bans on disposable bags in cities and states. Um, major companies, hundreds of them, were making commitments to reduce or eliminate fossil fuel-based plastics. I've even heard about companies developing plant and mushroom-based plastics as a substitute. And then COVID hit. And we've seen major backsliding in the perspective around plastics and, and many of the practices too, where many of those bans around single-use plastic bags were lifted, um, people rushed to get takeout food in disposable single-use containers. And there was this whole narrative that if something is wrapped in plastic, it must be safer. And of course, further research on, on COVID revealed that not to be true. But to me, just watching the dynamic in the past half year or so just highlighted what a uniquely complex and entrenched relationship our society has with plastic. You've been on the cutting edge of this work for a while, and I'm, I'm wondering, what do you see as the real opportunities to address fossil fuel addiction, plastic addiction, and all of these harms that we're living with? What's it going to take to shift us to a new way of living? Well, wow, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very big question. I wish I had the vision. I wish I had Theo on my shoulder to uh, whisper in my ear during this time of COVID. Um, it is definitely true that uh, COVID has not been good for reducing plastics in the world. It's been quite a boon to the plastic industry, single use and um, more things wrapped and packaged everything you said, I totally agree with. Um, I think that there has to be, there is a groundswell of um, people who want to see a change away from a petrochemicals economy 
Uh, I don't think that we have quite the political will there yet, but I'm hoping that that will follow. You know, if we can get back to some of the issues like climate or, you know, environmental toxic chemicals um, and health issues that, you know, were incredibly important eight months ago and um, start getting back to making the kind of changes that need to happen because the real the, the problem is is that for a lot of these things you can't really clean them up on the back end you can't scoop all of the plastics out of the ocean and some of the chemicals not the ones that we've talked about here that I'll say a bit about the bisphenols and the phthalates that's a little bit of good news but other endocrine disruptors are long lasting and they build up in the environment and in our bodies and that's not good with the Bisphenols and the phthalates, actually those chemicals leave the body within hours to days of exposure. So if we can stop the influx, the sort of pipeline that's bringing those chemicals in, we can actually possibly begin to recover because nearly everybody that's tested has uh, these chemicals in their body because of constant exposure. But if we could stop the exposure, we could get those out of our body, some of them anyway. So that is a, a, a little sign of hope. And, you know, aside from any sort of work for people who are politically engaged and can support a broad change, you know, from their local state and federal governments to stop this at its source, to move away from petrochemical based products and um, fuels and getting it to be addressed on that broad high level is really important. On an individual level, I feel like it's, you know, the old adage, reduce, reuse, recycle. I like to say, reduce, reduce, reduce. Then you can reduce <laughs> and then you can recycle. But really, there's a lot of things that you can remove from your, your daily life and replace them with uh, non-plastic items. I've done that, you know, in my kitchen and a lot of ways in avoiding fragrances in a packaged food and don't touch receipts and those sorts of things. And there's a lot of literature out there to teach you how to do that. Um, and I think really just educating people as much as possible from the, some of the resources we've talked about, like the Center for International Environmental Law talks a lot about this connection between fuels and plastics. And um, on TEDx, the website is still up for a couple of years, and we have our Drilling for Disruption uh, page that gives a lot of resources. There's these big movements towards a plastic-free world, like the Plastic Pollution Coalition. And Breast Cancer Action has a great fact sheet on how you can personally reduce exposure to BPA and phthalates. And so I think working on that individual level is, is super important, but also, you know, you need to drive some change on the higher level. And in some senses, you know, it works to do that with the, the power of the purse, so to speak, is to stop purchasing these plastic products unless you absolutely have no other alternative. Um, and then if the demand goes down, possibly the supply will reduce. Well, we've got our work cut out for us. <laughs> Agreed. So, um, Carol, I just want to thank you so much, um, both for speaking with me today and also for your many years of service. I think it's an incredible model of combining 
science to advocacy that you've been a part of and and a piece that often gets missed honestly there's a lot of research that gets published that doesn't get used and so the service you've you've done by providing resources and being part of the efforts to address these concerns around fracking and fossil fuels in general is just a wonderful contribution to all of us. Before we close, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered here? I think that we've covered it all. And I very much appreciate the work of Breast Cancer Action in getting this information out. And I am grateful that you invited me on this podcast. Thanks so much, Carol. So addressing the breast cancer epidemic is a complex undertaking. Starting to understand what living in a fossil fuel addicted society can do to our health and the larger ecological and planetary health gives us a foundation for action. Core to our action must be a commitment to work for justice because we know that the impacts of the fossil fuel continuum are disproportionately felt by low-income people and communities of color. With a problem so large, it can seem easier to focus on our individual habits around plastic use, but if we really want to solve these issues, we must work together to shift society away from our fossil fuel addiction and toward a safer, healthier, and more just way of living. Breast Cancer Action is committed to working toward this kind of change, and we hope you will continue this important work with us. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories, share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org, because together we can do something besides worry.